when he's talking about cutting up an outlaw, yeah, I put an X in his back and Strom Thurmond says, well, why'd you do that? <laughs> he says, I made him an X member. <laughs> that and more on this week's episode of The Pod Spotter. Well, you're listening to the Pod Spotter. I'm your host, Zach Robodas. Uh, there are too many podcasts out there. By the time I finish this promo, 17 new podcasts will have popped up. And you know what? That's why we're here to find the diamonds in the rough. Every Monday, we're going to talk to the creators, the hosts. We're going to learn about their pods, play clips. And if you find it useful and entertaining, please subscribe to our pod. Visit thepodspotter.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Pod Spotter for extra content and info on upcoming shows. Thank you, everybody. It's really a pleasure. I've been screening hundreds of podcasts. A shootout in Nevada, a brawl in San Diego, and a deadly stabbing in San Francisco. Three separate incidents in 2020 alone involving one of the most notorious criminal syndicates in the United States. The Hells Angels, also known as H.A. or Red and White, originated in 1948. Often we hear in the media about MS-13, the Mafia, the Crips. But over the past 70 years, the Hells Angels have engaged in organized crime, drug trafficking, extortion, domestic terrorism, prostitution, murder, and kidnapping. They have chapters all over the world, but it is one of history's most bloody and notorious chapters out of Cleveland, Ohio, that provides the backdrop for our podcast this week. Relative Unknown is the new podcast from C-13 Originals. It delicately tracks two narratives in its recently completed 10-episode true crime narrative. One of Clarence Butch Crouch, Hell's Angel turned murderer turned state informant. And the second of Jackie Taylor, his daughter, who at the age of seven was thrust into the often underreported dysfunctional life inside the Witness Protection Program. Joining me in my discussion of Relative Unknown is two-time Emmy, Peabody, Clio, and NAACP Image Award-winning filmmaker Zach Levitt. Welcome, Zach, and thank you for sharing this pod with us today. How are you, Zach? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. I, uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, in addition to uh, that sort of wiki introduction of your, of your life, how would you introduce yourself? Uh... <laughs> definitely not like that. <laughs> no, um, you don't just throw that out at, at parties? <laughs> no, probably just, you know, if we're talking about work, uh, former um, and sometimes uh, doc filmmaker who's now in the doc podcast world. Now, before we begin, before we get into anything, I have to ask, we're going we're gonna to be talking about Hell's Angels. We're going to be talking about Witness Protection Program. Am I in any danger for having this conversation with you? Is my family going to be in any danger by having this conversation with you? I, I don't think so. I can't definitively say no. You know, there's always that that caveat. You got to take your life into your own hands oh a little bit. But uh, 
Did you um, have to think about that when embarking upon this journey? Like, if I'm going to be doing this, be my, yeah, I would. I would absolutely be lying if I said uh, I did not think about that. Um, that was a, 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 a very large part of the thought process was um, how to approach the story, um, how much to tell, um, what to talk about, what to what to sort of highlight, but. You know, at the end of the day, um, and this is what I told Jackie from the very beginning and why I think she was excited to work with me on the project was that, you know, I'm always looking for um, the most human angle possible in these stories. And, and to me, of course, in this, in this story, it was the relationship or lack thereof between a father and a daughter. And I thought that... Um, you know the 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 thread of the hell's angels and 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 witsec is is super interesting and compelling and people are going to stick around for that but while they're sticking around for that they're getting the meat of the story which is this relationship and this sense of loss and and um you know the psychology of what what both Jackie and her father went through and i felt like if i stuck as close to that as possible um it was never going to be a story about the hell's angels. That's just never what it was going to be. It was a story about one hell's angel and what he did. That was always the focus. And, and to be honest, I, I had some really nice conversations with some hell's angels uh, prior to the episodes being written and released. Hmm. Um, and everybody who I came in, into contact with um, was super nice. I mean, that, wow. that's, there's really no other way to put it. Um, and I, you know, I was never going to put myself in the position of, of placing them in, ju- you know, judging them or judging the club. This, like I said, this was a story about Butch and his family. So I know you from, you know, your work on 30 for 30 and basketball docs and, 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 and dream teams. So how, how does, how does a nice boy like you get, get, get mixed up in the Hells Angels? How did this come about? <laughs> how did this start? You know, it's it's actually really funny. The last several <laughs> stories I've done are as far away from sports as possible. Um, I was I was making these uh, sports films, and um, I got a call from Chris Corcoran from Cadence Thirteen um, to do a podcast about Big Poppy, David Ortiz, which I did uh, a couple years back. Um, and while I was doing that, he had let me know that they really wanted to start an originals division. Um, doing, you know, premium docs, uh, which, which, which they would produce. So he hired me to start this division and he had already been, been in talks with TNT about a show that they were doing called I am the night, which was about the black Dahlia murder, um, in 1947 in Los Angeles. And they wanted to do a partner podcast for the show. So when I took the job, I began speaking with TNT as well. And I said, well, I don't want to do like an after the episode conversation type of podcast. That's not what I do. What about incorporating the family of the primary suspect? Uh, In this case, the the show was about Fauna Hodel. um, And she had passed away um, the year before and her two daughters, I was put in touch with them. And I told them I wanted to do a story through their eyes about this whole thing. And that, that ultimately became uh, root of evil, which I, mm-hmm. I did last year, um, which became a really big podcast um, about the black Dahlia murder uh, about the family. You know, I got all of the family members to participate. Um, 
And that was a wild ride and very similar to Relative Unknown in the sense that it was about a family and my primary focus was um, idealistic in a sense. Like how this family has been estranged from each other for so many decades. How do I bring them together? That was really my ultimate goal in making the podcast. Mm. And then we did uh, Gangster Capitalism on the college admissions scandal, season one, season two, we just finished, which was about the NRA. But all of these sort of do have a similar, this similar parallel uh, in that human element. Really enjoyed that process, making podcasts, doing these types of stories. Obviously, true crime is huge. Um, and that sort of led me to Relative Unknown. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is about the family. It is deceptively about Hell's Angels, but it's not really about like, I think I wrote maybe three intros for this interview because I was like, how do I, is it Witsack? Is it the family? Is it? And I thought it was, it was best to start with just like sort of Hell's Angels and the sort of uh, very real uh threat or, um, sorry, existence that they have in the world still today. I think sometimes we think that like, I don't know, they were more dangerous in the sixties and seventies, but they're there, they're out there. They're, they're here today. It is a, it is a, a, a still a relevant sort of, uh, gang and, 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 and threat to, to Jackie, uh, who we may hear from later, uh, who is now in the witness protection program as a result of her involvement, uh, her father's involvement with the hell's angels. So that's all just to say, like, there's a lot of pieces here. There must've yeah. been just, uh, w- was there one piece that you were like, Nope, this is the story. We're all, like, was there one piece of information that put it over the edge of like, this is what I want to work on. Well, I mean, look, it's not often that you dive into a story that you're handed this incredible archive of material mm. to work with. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I was so lucky in that sense. Uh, Rumor Inc., the, 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 the production company, had been following Jackie for 10 years. Mm. Um, and one of the partners there is an old friend of mine. And he reached out to me and he said, you know, hey, I have this story. We've been trying to make it into a film. It was initially going to be about Witsec, but then this happened with, with Butch. Um, and we have all this stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Just take a look. Let me know what you think. Do you think it could be a podcast? And I, I reached right back out to him and I, of course, said yes. Um, but that, you know, knowing how unique that material is, you know, Butch's manuscript. Mm. So Butch is gone, right? But we have his life story as a Hell's Angel in his own first person narrative. And the urgency with which he writes his story, it feels like you're in that moment with him on every page. So the thought was how to bring that to life. You know, there were some, they had recorded scenes with Jackie going back to, to Texas from, you know, the week after the, the murder-suicide. You know, ha- having that stuff in my hands was like, you know, something you dream about, right? So I knew I, I, that was the first focus, how to, how, to, how to, like, you know, how to use that in the most uh, efficient and, and impactful manner. And to tee it up for people here who haven't yet uh, subscribed but are about to subscribe to Relative Unknown, we're, we're talking about two main characters of this story. We're talking about Butch, the Hell's Angel. We're talking about Jackie, his daughter. Butch also goes by Paul Dome, this character that we're introduced to in the pilot. So Paul Dome is the person we meet first. That is Butch's alias. And we get to hear right off the bat from some of that archival stuff, that awesome sort of treasure trove that you inherited uh, in the form of a 911 call. 
911, what's your emergency? I'm running my trash route over here behind One-Eyed Jack's liquor store. Okay. And there's a house on fire back here. And there's a man sitting in a blue Jaguar watching it burn. Okay. I asked him if that was his home burning, and he said yes. Then I asked him if he wanted to move further away from the fire, and he said he wasn't worried about the fire. He said he was worried about the bullets that were going to fly. Okay, we'll send someone right out. So the whole thing kicks off with this double murder, uh, suicide. And, you know, just based on my experience with, um, with true crime, I'm like, okay, here we go. 10 episodes about how this happened, <laughs> you know, unbeknownst to me, that is just one little onion layer of, of, of what is coming. And so it's sort of like, it's the best kind of true crime where there's just tons of twists and turns and you just learn a whole bunch along the way. This was a, a, a difficult story in the sense that there was so much, right? Yeah. There's a double murder, suicide. There's Jackie being, uh, for lack of a better word, abducted in the night by Witsek. Um, you know, growing up, her, her experience in witness protection, you know, how Butch ended up where he was, um, who he was, all of these things to sort of try to lay out um, in, in one story as opposed to like, they, they, it really could have been 10 individual episodes. Um, and it just felt like the murder-suicide was, was the place that we had to start with. Um, and there was always the question in the back of my mind, not, not to get too micro, but there was the question in the back of my mind of, you know, we have this trunk, right, which mm-hmm. is where we get the manuscript from. So I can't incorporate the manuscript into the story mm. unless we sort of know where that came from. So we went in it, and uh, we saw this real dark-covered, just old wooden steamer-type trunk. And I was still thinking we're going to find more bones or bodies. And we opened it, it wasn't locked. It, it had the hasp on it, but it wasn't locked. And we started finding all kinds of Hell's Angel paraphernalia. I mean, covers and patches and gloves and jewelry and just tons of stuff. Wow. So have you seen the trunk? Do you know? Have you looked in it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had had it in my hotel room for about three days. (sighs) uh, Just going through everything. You know, Jackie just said here, when when I went out to Montana, first time to meet her. Um crazy story about that, by the way, uh, which I'll come back to, but she, yeah, she handed me the trunk, brought it into my room and I went through every piece of paper in it, every article and just picked out what I felt was relevant, would be relevant, took it all back to New York. We scanned it all. And, and, um, uh, they had already scanned hundreds and hundreds of pictures and all kinds of stuff. Um, and of course the manuscript, um, one thing I was unclear about though, was he had a second home that, or what he had, they had two trailers or cause what, yeah. One so, had burned so, and, yeah, yeah. So it was a, a, a relatively small plot of land right off of like a main road in, in, in East Texas there. Um, they lived in a house, um, which they had built on the property and they rented lots for people to live in, in their, in their travel trailers. Right. Okay. You know, we're in town for a month you know, driving through the, driving around the country or whatever, they wanted to stop for a month or a week or whatever the case may be. This was the area where they could do it, right? They could hook up their electricity and their sewage and all that. Right, right, right. Um, and he also had like a really old, like Winnebago that was like Got broken it. down. 
next to the house. That so was his man cave. That was where the that the, was his man cave. Exactly. Wow, that's wow, where wow. The, okay. Exactly. That's where he put the trunk right before he did what he did. And then um, I, I forget. To, and someone pointed you to that, or pointed them to the truck. Someone said, "Hey, you are also going to want to check out that truck." You're yeah, gonna, exactly. Yeah. And that was that was a, a very good friend of his who didn't uh, live in the trailer. Th- this guy actually ended up uh, being murdered by his girlfriend at Thanksgiving dinner. Okay. Okay. Yeah. By his girlfriend. Thanksgiving holidays are stressful. Holidays <laughs> are stressful. It's interesting to hear that the trunks were in your hotel room. The trunk was with you in your hotel room, just from what I learned from your podcast about how angels come back for the patches. It was about four or five days after the incident. I was in the office, and a gentleman came in. He was 70, 75 years old, and uh, lived in Arkansas. And he was pretty long-haired, gray-haired, tatted up pretty good, and he introduced himself. And he told me that he was a hell's angel. He said, I still am. I'm not active. But he was telling me, you know, he had heard about what we had going on. I said, well, I can't really discuss a whole lot of it with you. He said, well, they take a really dim view, any of what they call their colors, patch, or whatever, that it's in the possession of anybody except the hell's angel. And he said, normally when, when they had somebody died or even when they got put in jail, it was their deal that some club member came and collected the covers and took them back with them. I did not know that. I did not know they, that, that they were that protective of patches, of, of the colors, and that there is someone tasked to come and retrieve them. No, the patches, the jewelry, all of those things are, are club property. Um, yeah. So if you, are, if you are out of the club for, um, for a reason that they don't like, you know, or, or really... I think any reason, you know, those, those colors, those patches belong to the club. Um, so Sheriff McKnight knew that when he gave Jackie the, the trunk. And so finally, uh, we get to, um, man, the, the hook of this, like we're, we're, we, we've got all these names and all of these people and the, the trunk and you're learning all the stuff about the hell's angels. And then, oh man, just about as good a hook as you can ask for from a pilot. It's finally revealed, um, who our narrator is. Before the Hells Angel left, he told Sheriff McKnight one last thing. He made a remark to me that uh, Butch, Clarence Crouch, is known by Butch. This guy said, I'm not really afraid of anything, but I was afraid of him. That he was one bad dude, I'll tell you. By this point, you've probably wondered why I'm the person telling you this story. Well, Butch Crouch also known as Paul Dome, was my father. Without the light or the darkness come. I'm in. I'm hooked. I'm binging it. Awesome. Man, awesome. it's so good. It's such a good pilot. How did you choose that song and how did you get the rights to that song? Because my Man, we got God. so lucky. Um, I love the, the Chris Stapleton song, Outlaw State of Mind. Okay. Um, they used it in uh, Hell or High Water at the end. I have never heard oh, it. Heard yeah, it same, same beat, same, same thump. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's very similar. The vibe was just perfect. I mm. wanted something that felt like, you know, Southern Rocky, bluesy, like just dirty. Um, and so I ended up reaching out to Chris Stapleton's manager. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, 
I don't know if we're going to be able to get you that song, but I have another song by an artist named Avi Kaplan. Let me send it to you. And that's what he sent me, Change on the Rise. And I was like, oh, my God, this is perfect. (laughs) Every the lyrics, it's just like, it just fits so perfectly i'm on a bike i'm on a harley i'm on a harley when it was yeah you're you're on a harley you're the the flames are in the background right so good yeah it's just it was it was it was perfect and it was one of those songs that i could not get out of my mind could not stop listening to and and they were uh red light management shout out to them they were amazing they worked with us to get us a song and and um they were really enthusiastic about it that's the pilot, and then we kind of go into the past, and we learn about Butch. We learn about who Paul Dome really was. Yes, we learn right. about Butch, and we we hear about him through this manuscript, which you have. Do you have the manuscript? I do. Where is the manuscript? Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> the manuscript you... is in a safe somewhere. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a it's a page turner. That's for sure. Yeah. Like like we say in the in the, in the podcast, he he ends his manuscript before he rolls over. So mm. he's not really discussing, he's not writing about particular trials until he gets into prison after the fact. And he's writing letters to detectives to. He took a writing to course, everybody. right? In jail. Or yeah. He learned how to do all. Is he tight? Yeah, he yeah. He's trying to, he, you know, he's trying to cut his time down. Sure. You know, he, he's, he's trying to do what he can to, to, to lighten his sentence. Um, but I also think that there was a part of Butch that, you know, he he felt bad about what he'd done in the past, and I think he was trying to make amends in that way. He's a complicated guy, as you as you sure. get from the podcast. Um, tough tough to figure out. If someone were to ask how I got involved in motorcycle gangs in the first place, I guess the answer would be that it all started in the Texas prison. About six months before I got out in October of '62, the guy in the next bunk noticed it first and snapped me to it. We were on the wind farm just outside of Huntsville, which was just off the highway. Our bunks were right next to the window and we could hear and see this guy on a Harley as he went back and forth to work each day. He had some real nice pipes on that old hog and the sound would echo across into the window. It sounded like he was talking to us. The sound of freedom as he would get on it all the way down the highway. It's Kerouac, baby. That's good. It's good. Yeah. Um, That's, uh, I gotta, I gotta give credit to, uh, my producer Lloyd Lockridge, who's got the most incredible voice. Uh, it was originally going to be a well-known actor that was going to play that role. Oh, wow. Uh, and for one reason or another, that didn't happen. And Lloyd just can do any voice. He's from Texas and he nailed it. McConaughey. Nailed it. McConaughey dropped. Yeah, he, he is. <laughs> he is. <laughs> Uh, that's fantastic. He does a great job. We do hear from Butch, though, uh, throughout the pod. Sometimes it's reenactment. Sometimes we actually do get to hear from him from your archival stuff. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the coolest things in this whole story is is Butch actually testified in front of the Senate in mm-hmm. 1983. And we have the audio of that. Um, and so you hear you hear his real voice. You hear his testimony. And you know, it's pretty rare in a story like this, um, especially one that goes back so many years, that you have this this piece, this this piece of archive where, you know, all of the stories sort of converge in this one moment and you're hearing it directly directly from his mouth. He's corroborating what he said in his manuscript. 
he's front and center presenting his story um, on such a on a, on such an incredible stage, right? Where the stakes could not be higher, right? He's in front of the U.S. Senate as a hell's angel turned snitch. That was a, a really interesting piece of information that I'd never known that uh, most snitches, so Butch eventually will snitch and will turn state's evidence on the Hells Angels, but in most, the majority of snitches uh, are arrested, are not, do not walk in and say, I have information for you. But this guy, and it's sort of a big question of the pod, why? Uh, Why did he flip? Why did he snitch? Um, But this guy just walked in and was like, I have information for you. Unbelievable. Un- absolutely unbelievable. I got to I mean, Chuck Grassley's been in the news a lot lately, so I, of course, have to. I, I need to hear how. Uh, I got to play this Chuck Grassley clip because he sounds like he was 90, 50 years ago. It's amazing. What is the role of the intelligence officer in the Hell's Angels, and what type of intelligence information do the Hell's Angels maintain? Intelligence officer was established back in 74, 73. And it was an office to gather all the information they could on the outlaws, pagans, any club in the United States, any police officer, any newsman, anybody that the Hells Angels had a grudge against. And they gathered it up from all the different people they know. And they collect all their addresses, types of cars, what girls they used to go with or whatever. And they have a saying in Hells Angels that... uh, came out in the paper a long time ago, back in 71 or so, that uh, Hell's Angel has a memory like an elephant he never forgets. And that's uh, quite a common saying now. So if they, have a, if they have a grievance with somebody, it never ends. They, uh, the intelligence officer goes to different towns. He's supplied with money from the Treasury for that specific reason, from a TCB fund, which is taking care of business. Lots to unpack in this clip. So... Butch uh, basically says that there is indeed an intelligence officer in the Hells Angels. They collect data. They collect information about people who have wronged them in the past. Zach Levitt, what are the odds that your name is on some (laughs) Hells Angel ledger somewhere? Pretty good. If it weren't now, I mean, if it weren't before, maybe now that you're mentioning it. (laughs) I swear. I bet, if, I, if, I, if this podcast gets me on a stinking Hell's Angel ledger. If I'm uh, there, you're there. <laughs> I guess from movies and stuff, it's like you kind of they kind of paint the image of um, they're, they're tough guys with a heart of gold, though. And they live by a code and and, uh, you know, they won't wrong you unless you wrong them. And what I was struck by in your pod was just learning about how much like the mafia they were and how they were inspired a lot by the Godfather. And it is a crime syndicate. You know, it's not just hobbyists like there is an agenda a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, look, we're talking about the 70s in Cleveland, right. which were, you know, um, riven by gang wars, you know, in the sixties. And there was this vacuum there that, um, groups were trying to fill, you know? And I think at the, at the time, as we hear in the, in the podcast and from the, from the law enforcement officers I spoke to, the hell's angels were right there in the mix with, with everybody, you know, filling that, that void. Mm. Um, but as we know, of course, the seventies, things were a lot different then right you know law enforcement was different um the things you could you could do i guess and get away with were different um it was a totally different time and 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 it was a different type of um 
I think bikers were different then, you know? Um, yeah, you I talk th- about in the pod the schism that sort of erupts over the law of the bones. Yeah. Since the Polish Women's Hall, we had made a law of bones. That required that every member had to kill someone. The people that were in the hall had got their bones that night, so they were excluded from having to do it again. New members had six months from the time they got their patch to earn their bones. From now on, we would make our own rules up as we went along and fuck the world. So Law Bones was just this one sect and this one group at this one specific time. That's not, I mean, they don't still, do you think that that still exists? Or my God. I, I don't think that that exists. And yeah. I think that the Hells Angels would tell you that it, that it never existed. Uh-huh. Um, but this is, this is Butch's, you know, this is Butch's narrative. This is, this is what he testified um, he, he, he spoke about it in front of the Senate as well. Um, and it's his story. So this is what he's got to say. Um, you know, we, we, we were never going to present this as this is what the hell's angels do. You know, the, this is Butch saying what the rule was at that time. So I think everybody, when they listen to the podcast can, choose to believe everything he says, can believe some of it, can believe none of it. Um, he's telling his life story in as vivid detail as you can possibly imagine. And that's what the story is when he speaks. Do you uh, feel strongly uh, one way or the other about why um, Butch did what he did? As we get deeper into the story, there are several reasons or, or, or potential reasons that are laid out. Um, and it wasn't until I spoke to Jim Cochran, who's now the senior assistant DA or whatever, he was the prosecutor on, on one of the cases and Butch told him that he owed the club money. And he was, he thought that that was as good of a reason for them to kill him as anything. And I think he, you know, as you hear, there's this constant struggle over the years of, you know, holding on to like the, the past image of the dirty biker that would go in and have barroom brawls, which was very much what Butch was and the sort of new age, um, the new age hell's angels. And I think he was sort of, you know, caught in in a position where he was, he was left on the outside, right? He says he was in a circle outside of the circle that those were his words. And I think that coupled with the fact that he owed the, the club money and Butch really, I think he painted himself into a corner. He had no way out. He didn't know what to do with his life. Um, so he threw everybody under the bus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Zach, you are an expert on Hell's Angels. You're an expert on Butch, but we want to know if you are an expert on your own podcast. And so we have some relative unknown swag here, some uh, weird wall art that uh, I'd like to proudly display behind me for all of time. If you can answer two out of three questions correctly about your own podcast, are you ready for a little segment we like to call How Well Do You Know your pod. I'm ready to be embarrassed here. Very good. <laughs> How many instances of bomb scares or explosions did your pod attribute to Cleveland alone in 1976, 1977? The, the prevalence thir- of bombs. That would yeah. be 36. Wow. One off. It was 37, actually. 37. One article said 36. All right. So the podcast said 37. Uh. It says 37. Well, let's play. Let's play it. Roll the tape. Let's see. In the mid-70s, Cleveland was called the bomb capital of the United States. 
Patrick Reynolds was a sergeant in the Cleveland Police Department's bomb squad then. In 1976 or 1977, we had 37 separate incidents of either a bomb going off somewhere or a bomb being found, which did not go off. 37 incidents, that was more than New York City, it was more than L.A., more than anybody. There were things going on virtually once a week, and it was just a, it was a wild period of time in Cleveland, totally out of control. 37 instances All right, so look, horse, horseshoes and hand grenades, right? Right. It's the only thing that you can be close in. So hand grenades, 36. That's fair. That's fair. You're pretty close. We'll we'll take 36. Um, Finding those guys was was the most fun part of doing the podcast. Bill Mushi? Well, not so much Bill Mushi, but the Patrick Mm. Reynolds, the Mm. Bob Cermak, the... Mike uh, Mike Doyle, who was who was uh, Mike. I'm sorry, Mike Dugan, who was in the Polish women's hall fight. The police officer that had the knife thrown at him, you know, finding mm. guys was was really amazing. You know, getting them on the phone and and did, did any of them? Did you get any resistance from any of them? Were any of them like, I'm not talking to you? No way, pal. There were a few people, former judges. Mm. That didn't want to talk. Funny, all on the government side, not on the Hells Angels side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there was one guy who was Butch's main handler from the uh, Department of Justice. And I spoke to him a bunch of times, and he got permission to speak from the DOJ. Hmm. Um, And then he just fell off the face of the earth. I called him probably another 30 times and just went right to voicemail and never heard back from him. So that was weird, but, uh, yeah, all all of the former police officers and detectives were all down to speak, which was awesome. Wow. Yeah. All right. Hit me with number two. Number two. Name a bit of a softball for you after that one. (laughs) I need it. Name two famous musicians targeted by the Hells Angels. Two famous musicians. Uh, well, we know Mick Jagger, um, from the Altamont, uh, episode. was there another one in the podcast? In the podcast. Oh mentioned. God. Um, well, we know sort of tangential. We know that um, the lead singer of Jefferson Starship was punched in the face on stage <laughs> by a Hells Angel. Do we know that? I don't think I know. I'm not up on my Hells Angels. Party Ballant, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And Butch also, um, I hope I'm getting the, the name of the band right. Uh yeah, he got in a fight with the lead singer of, I think it was Foghat, maybe. <laughs> like, stole their equipment. Um, but, oh, my God. who? I'd was like the, to punch that guy, for sure. <laughs> who was the second musician? This particular member in that group of six was an asshole. He went to Graceland shooting his gun off. Motherfucking Elvis Presley. That's what caught the ear. So naturally, a phone call goes out, say, hey, this fucking asshole's out. I, you know, what? what is the reason for that type of behavior? Yeah, see, your question was well, a little misleading. It's a little misleading. It's a little misleading. Targeted by the Hells Angels. They were, they he were was not Hell's... involved in that. It was some other Very. asshole that they were with. Oh, was he part... not a Hells Angel? He was not a Hells Angel. It was a guy that they were with. I think they were trying to become Hells Angels in Memphis at the time. But they okay. were not Hells Angels. The guy telling the story was a Hells Angel. But God. he said, yeah, this guy was over at Graceland shooting up, saying FL. And he was just hanging out with yeah, the Hells Angels. Exactly. 
Got it. Got uh, it. All right. Well, then you get that one. You get right, so one, one, one and one here. Yeah. All right. So we're giving that to you since the other guy wasn't technically a hell's angel. Uh, but both of these a little suspect. I don't know how to judge this right now. 36. Uh, we'll sit. Let's bring it home with this last question. This is not a softball. This is this is a tough one. I don't know how we're going to do it. But uh, get this correctly. And uh, relative unknown lives on the wall forever. What is the first step? Step one in the Hells Angels initiation process. Hang around. Boom. Let's listen. All right. Uh, first, it's a hang around. When he first comes around the club, there's a lot of mud checking. He has to fight a lot of people. A lot of people jump on him. They jump on him in twos, threes. Then uh, after a period of time, which maybe three months, it may be a year or two years, we'll have a vote, and it has to be a 100% vote that he's allowed to be a hangaround. Then he becomes a hangaround. He can come into the clubhouse, and he can do flunky work. Then he becomes a prospect. And he can be brought up for a prospect three times. If he's voted down three different times, so then they run him off. They beat him up, take his old lady, take his motorcycle, run him away. Then uh, as a prospect, he's on 24-hour call. There's always a watch at the clubhouse. He stands watch upstairs. He's armed with, uh, there's carbines, shotguns. There's uh, twilights up there, the scopes. There's scanners, everything. They have a security room in the top of the clubhouse. He sits there at night from uh, 12 o'clock till daylight. How formal or ceremonial is the initiation process? Well, there's usually a big party, a lot of drinking, fighting, just uh, it's toned down from years before. It used to be everybody would urinate on them, everybody would throw grease on them, things like that. And they would have to uh, do things to women and all that. Takes me back to my frat days. My goodness. (laughs) What in the world? A hang around. Hang around prospect. So wait, is the contract closed on Jagger? Do we know? Had an open contract think, on him. Nobody yeah, mentioned I mean, it was closed. I have no idea. The Hells Angels denied that, of course. Um, yeah. it's it's a it was a pretty shocking moment when I first heard that. And yeah. I knew it would be pretty explosive to you know for people to hear that. Um, well you got it right. Uh you got that one. That'll bring it home. Relative unknown lives on the pod wall. Uh, one you. final question for you, sir. If you could pick one breadcrumb or one character or one nugget of information from your pod to do a spinoff pod of relative unknown, who would you choose or what road would you go down? Uh, that's a great question. Um, here's what it would probably be. Uh, maybe just a wider look at Cleveland organized crime in the seventies. You know, I think, mm-hmm. I think people always, associate organized crime in the mob with New York or Vegas, um, you know, or even LA or, or, you know, these huge cities, but Cleveland was, you know, the stopover point for the, the mob for years. Um, you know, that it just become, became this stronghold for the mob. And then, um, like I said, there was a power vacuum when the, when the boss died of natural causes I think that that's really interesting because there was a lot going on there. There were, there were, uh, there were race riots and, and um, police officers were killed. And, and um, the late 60s, early 70s, Cleveland was like the Wild West. We're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to bring in Miss Jackie Taylor herself and hear a little bit from her. We are here to fill the role 
of podcast liaison. We're going to bring you the good stuff, okay? We're going to bring you the hidden gems, the next big things. And uh, I hope you subscribe and check us out. Visit thepodspotter.com on Facebook, on Twitter. We're on Instagram, at thepodspotter. And you can go there for lots of cool stuff. And please, please, please leave a review on iTunes. Uh, anything you want to say, uh, good things, bad reviews, all press is good press. Just leave us a note, um, and help us spread the word. We release every Monday, uh, with a great new review of a wonderful new pod. And we're just going to keep going whether you're here or not. If you have suggestions for pods for us to feature, please drop us a note on any of the aforementioned social media platforms. Thanks everybody. Jackie, thank you for doing this. We're glad you're here and we're glad you're chatting with us. Jackie, I had uh, two, the descendants of two Somali refugees on uh, a couple weeks ago and, and we were chatting about the cost of storytelling, of, of revealing one's personal story. That it is, um, that whenever you do it, like it's not free. You're not spending this energy freely. Uh, it costs you something to dig in to it the does. trunk yeah. it costs you something to relive this all the time and for people to be sticking zoom cameras and microphones on you and so i just offer that as like a way of saying thank you and i know this you know this isn't easy to drudge this stuff up all the time so thank you and i, I hope people subscribe to your pod and, and and listen to your story because i mean i sure was uh blown away by it thank you i appreciate that and we've we have had Zach some good here. response so oh good i didn't want to ask you about that how are yeah. how, what is the how are uh, people responding? I've had a lot of people reach out to me, um, other people in the program, just a lot of people just offering support also. So it's been, um, I've made a couple friends along the way, which I didn't expect to happen. Just Witsec, by, Witsec friends just, or? Well, I've always had those, um, okay. but just as far as um, just people that supporters and hey, I've been through this and you know, your story reminded me of it's not the same, but. I've been through, you know, so much trauma and your story, you know, your story of survival has helped me kind of deal with stuff, which I was not expecting that. What is your current status, your current witness protection status? Are you currently technically? I am a breached yeah. member of WITSEC. A breached? And do you get a letter in the mail that calls you a breached member of WITSEC? No, or how do you know they you're- told me that last time they gave me my passport. So, wow. Um, but you know, technically I didn't sign anything. I was seven years old when this all happened. So yeah. they're still, even though they say they're not, they're still responsible for supplying my identity, even though they say that they're not now. It's, it's crazy. That's the heart of the whole crusade, right? That is the heart of the whole storytelling. That is the heart of every, all of this is to just, um, bring awareness to the witness protection program. Absolutely. Are your as Connor or are people? Sorry, I don't. I shouldn't okay. say his name. Or uh, are your children? <laughs> are your children like? What is that? What happens to second generation witness protection program people? Do they? Are they technically also in the witness protection program? No, they have their um, own identity. You know, they were okay. uh, nothing had to be changed with them. Um, I guess second generation had to deal with a lot of the. You know, I, I had a lot of mental health issues. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I deal with them every day. So I feel second generation, that's a very good question and a very good topic. Um, they've kind of lived this life with me. Connor's older, so he's kind of seen more. I haven't talked to him a lot about it, but just in helping me do the podcast and recording, he's learned a lot. My other children, they 
really don't know, you know, what, um, what's, what's happened, but they've had to deal with, you know, things that I've gone through mentally and personally and my struggles and trying to be a good mom too. And so that's, that's kind of the aftermath of what they're dealing with. On your pod, you mentioned how, you know, you just had the school guidance counselor and then your mom comes in and tells you the, the truth about who your father was just in front of your guidance counselor. And, and that was it. There was no government sort of assistance there in terms of like, okay, we'll check in with this person uh, once a month, just seeing how you're doing mentally. In your, in your renovation of WITSEC, is that what you'd be calling for? Absolutely. Uh, mental health care is crucial to, this is a traumatic experience. You know, we all deal with our own levels of trauma in life. This is um, pretty dark, but that is one thing that is crucial to um, the restructure and revamping of this program. Do I believe in it? Possibly if they can restructure and change, but we can't just put these people in the dark and, you know, say, good luck, call us if you need us, like they have been doing. I may be wrong, but I don't think I am. I don't think there's been any congressional oversight of the program since 1996. And that was as a result of Bill Mushi's um, protected witness series in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Bill, of course, was featured pretty prominently in the podcast. But, you know, we're talking about 24 years since they've really dug in and taken a look at the program and, 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 and you know, checked in on on the efficiency of it and to give folks an idea of uh just the the trauma that a seven-year-old endures uh i think we should play a little bit from your pod um about the first time jackie met her new dad and heard her new name for the first time at the age of seven there were other protected witnesses in this house as well and there was a man who was wearing white and tan And he was clean. He shaved his face. He cut his hair. And I remember him sitting at a table with a lamp on the table. And I didn't know who this guy was until he spoke. And he said, it's me. Jackie Ann. Come here, Jackie Ann. Jackie. And I just remember thinking, your hair, your shirt, your everything. Why had he changed? It didn't make any sense. Where was my dad and this guy? I know this guy is my dad, but I'm fucking confused. And we were told that our name was going to be changed. We weren't quite sure why. I had a notebook where I actually filled up that notebook with my new name, Jacqueline Ann Taylor. Jacqueline Ann Taylor. Over and over and over. And they told me that if I wrote my new name wrong anywhere, or if I ever got my story wrong, that I could get my whole family killed. Without the Jackie, describe to someone who uh, has only had one identity uh, their entire life what it's like being uh, addressed by a new name all of a sudden at age seven. You know, my first name stayed the same, but I, w- I was taught to lie. So your whole life, and I I talked about this a little bit in the podcast, your whole life you're told as a child, you know, you don't lie, you don't steal, you don't cheat. It's one of the cardinal rules of that your parents instill in you. And then I'm told that now I have to lie. Now you have to lie. You have to lie to every single person that you know. You have to remember the story. I mean, that just, 
I was so confused and trying to be a kid. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure I had a Barbie in one hand while I'm practicing my new name. Cause I remember Barbies in this house that we were at, you know? So it was, it was just crazy to, I didn't understand, but I did, if that makes sense. They gave the notebook that we used in kindergarten with the big gray recycled pages on it. I don't know if you remember those. I'm oh, sure yeah. Zach Levitt does because he's more my oh, age. Oh, this was an assignment. This was an, you were forced to write, to, to do that. Yeah, name. to do um, my name over and over and over in this book. And of course, motorcycles becoming, you know, the, the, they were this source of, you know, this sense of family for Jackie for the first part of her life and, and a sense of closeness and hearing that sound meant, you know, she would see her dad or something good would happen. Now she was told that she had to fear that sound, right. That that sound could get her killed. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't want to speak for Jackie, of course, but her whole world was just completely torn apart and flipped upside down. So my next memory was coming into this house in Tampa. It was huge. It was the biggest house that we'd ever seen or ever been in. We had our own separate wing, and I remember there was a guy standing there with a semi-automatic weapon, and that scared the shit out of us. We weren't allowed to leave, and we were told that you have to watch out for motorcycles now. Motorcycles had always been a security blanket to me because it was my father and my uncles that were on motorcycles. Now I'm being told that I need to be afraid of motorcycles because they pose a threat and to watch out for those patches. And it was then that we realized this house, this was actually a government safe house for federally protected witnesses. You know, you say in the pod that it was about, uh, you know, Butch would have would have cursed you if he knew that you were returning the patches because that was obviously a very dangerous thing to do just having the patches but you did it anyway and so i to the listener and maybe this was just me but it also sounded like yes it was an f you to butch but it was a way to uh to to say hi to him again too and to reconnect with your dad or am i reading too much into it no that's that's a good point um it's my life now you know he left me with this uh huge um I guess I'm picking up the pieces still. I have a, a big project still ahead of me and I'm doing it my way, not his way. <laughs> Would he approve of how I was doing it? No, but I'm doing what needs to be done. And he's mm. not here. I'm doing this by myself now. So this is how I choose to do it. Um, I've had nothing but support and love from the club. I talk to the club, a couple of members almost every day big members. Um, they, they've really become my friends and they're, you know, uh, they've been with me through this whole journey. So mm. it's, um, it's important to keep that because it's part of my childhood and mm. they've accepted me back as family. And I'm eternally grateful for that because they can, they were able to overlook the fact who my father is. And they're very careful when talking about him to me you know a couple of the yeah. members will kind of go off and yeah they're in that room, snitching so uh but they always stop themselves and oh sorry sorry we know he was your dad but you know how we feel about oh, that's fine i don't even know how to feel about my dad every day it's a new feeling for me do 
you feel like they 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 used um fear and they used hell's angels and the danger around hell's angels for um confusion and to control is that what it is it's mostly just absolutely yes there was no of course you know the hell's angels would have loved to find my father back when all this happened but they they were never looking for us you know it was just kind of a power struggle on who was gonna get the best case who was gonna blow the hell's angels wide open and you know they they used our family for that what would you say to people who would be like, well, we can't have more, we can't have more people checking in on them. We need less contact with these people because the more contact, the more sort of government um, counselors that go in to talk to kids, it increases the danger. You know, it increases the danger with each person that talks to, you know, these children in the witness protection program. That's one more opportunity for the bad guys to get you. They definitely need to be monitored. My father should have been monitored. My father, by all definition, was a serial killer. Um, he killed many people in his life and they, they weren't watching him and look what his final act was. So they hmm. do need to be monitored. Um, children of what sec, I have a very, very different stance on children versus adults. Adults, they made their bed, they can lie in it. Do they need the health care, the mental health care, everything? Yes, of course. My main concern is the children. Mm. they need to be protected. My mother didn't give me any information. I had to go find it myself. I should have had my own worker appointed to me when I turned 18 and I didn't. What uh, has this been like hearing the major plot points of your life in a neatly packaged 10 episode podcast? (laughs) What was that like? It's hard to believe that it's me still. Um, I'm, just your average gal that works at a bar casino in a little town in Montana. And that's what I'm trying to maintain for my children. I'm trying Mm. to keep this normalcy, but I know that there's two Jackie Taylors and it's that balancing act. And it's, it's a struggle. Um, I struggle with it all the time. So am I in counseling? Oh yes. Am I on? (laughs) I'm, I have got to keep my mental health in check all the time, but it, it is listening to that reminds me of, I'm I'm still that person too. Yeah. It has to be changed. And I'm the only person I feel that can do it. So how do we do it, Zach? What do we, what do we do? How do we do it? (laughs) I mean, I I think, honestly, I think conversations like these, you know, what, what I told Jackie from the very beginning, you know, with regard to sort of balancing her story with Butch's and and how that would play out. Um, You know, my job was to make the most compelling podcast possible that would get people talking, right? And that would get Jackie to be able to appear um, on podcasts like this or on television or have somebody write about it, at which point she could really, you know, speak about what her, her true goal is, which is to, to revamp the WITSEC program. Um, we knew it wasn't going to be an entire podcast about WITSEC and it wasn't going to be an entire podcast about the Hells Angels. You know, as I said earlier, it's about Jackie and Butch. Um, and if, and if it's dramatic enough and interesting enough, you know, people, people like you, Zach, will ask questions about what needs to be done. You know, podcast, you're the podcast guy. Like, you know, it's interesting how they start to spread by word of mouth, how long, how long of a tail these, some of these stories have, right? And, and mm-hmm. you know, it just takes that 
one person that has some juice maybe with, you know, the, the con- Congressional Oversight Committee for WITSEC to say, hey, you know, we should be talking about this. This is something we should be talking about. And that's the hope. Um, Jackie uh, and Zach, a question for both of you that I like to ask folks is, uh, is there a, a single clip or piece of audio that you heard from this 10 episode piece uh, that you would want inducted into the uh, podcast Hall of Fame to live in perpetuity? Oh, my God. Um, I mean, some of the stuff from Butch's manuscript, I think, are incredibly compelling and dramatic. But um, Butch in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee is incredible. incredible. And when he's talking about um, cutting up an outlaw, you know, and put an X in his back. That's what I was going to say. That's that's what it is right there. He That's says, like, everybody talks member. about. Yeah, I put an yes. X in his back, and they and and Strom Thurmond says, "Well, why'd you do that?" <laughs> yeah. He says, "I made him an ex-member." I was at a tattoo shop getting a tattoo on my arm. A lot of outlaws walked in, and one of the outlaws had a outlaws Memphis on his back with their center logo, and I put 180 stitches in his back with a big X through it because put 180 stitches in his back. Yes. Was that reported to police? Was there anything ever done about it? They tried to catch me, but I got out of town. What size piece of flesh did you cut off of him? I didn't, cut, I didn't cut it off of him. I just put a great big X in it. Huh? I just put a great big X in it. It's been in magazines. You put a big X on him just to mark mm-hmm. it out? Yes. And why did you do that? What was the purpose? I made him an X member. <laughs> Let's get quiet. That that's definitely one of them. Um, I don't know. There's 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 it's a it's a really good question. It's I I'd have to give it some more thought. But there's so many like moments that um, I found myself moved, yeah. and I found myself emotional at, at at a lot of points. But Jackie's story, you know, don't let your light go out. Um, you know, wanting to kill her dad. Those are, those are the things that, that really stood out to me. That was my pick. Jackie's sharing uh, her light and not letting her light go. Her advice to everyone, don't let your light go out. I think uh, you are a very inspirational person, Jackie Taylor. Thank uh, you. It feels odd and disingenuous sometimes just dipping into people's lives like this uh, for a moment and, and, and making them expose the, the biggest secrets of their lives. Um, and so... I thank you for your candor and your honesty, and I hope amplifying your voice does some good. Uh, thank you guys for sharing this pod. It is the last five minutes of our podcast, um, and we have it. It feels weird to do this because we reveal secrets at the end of our podcast, but this whole podcast has been about revealing secrets. Right. So feels somewhat. Uh, I, you know what? I stand on tradition. Uh, it's the last five minutes of our podcast. You can talk about whatever you want. Doesn't have to be Witsec. Doesn't have to be Hell's Angels. Doesn't have to be about carving X's in other guys' backs. It's the last five minutes. Get whatever you want off your chest, Jackie Taylor and Zach Levitt. And uh, I'll go first, actually, because I want to. I want to call out my friend Mark, who um who who called me and and um he responded to a picture that he saw on Facebook of me uh, holding my newborn baby and one of those baby characters. He didn't like how I was doing it, and uh, he's. Well, he was right. It was not the correct on the correct setting. But to call me and daddy shame me, I felt very like, oh, what you know? What? How dare you tell me how to hold my kid? Like I felt very, felt very defensive, and I should have just been like, eh, thanks, man, I appreciate it. Looking right. out for my kid. 
But my first reaction was like, how dare you? And so I, I guess I got to check on daddy shaming somebody else. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I hope to pay it forward, pay the daddy shame forward. So, and I know Mark listens to the pod, so I wanted to uh, share that story and just reveal that that was my first instinct. And I'm sorry, I'm a horrible human. Um, anybody else got anything? And you don't have to, you don't have to share anything. You can uh, sing a song, uh, recite poetry. No, uh, I'd like to, day. I'd like yeah. to talk a little bit about anybody, you know, talking about just, um, it just reminded me, um, don't let your light go out. Um, hmm. I'm just going to be brutally honest, you know, going through all this COVID, um, being on my couch for 10 days with vertigo and not being able to walk to the bathroom by myself. Um, I did go through a dark time again last week and I'm not ashamed of it. And that's something that we kind of need to talk about, you know, don't, don't be ashamed. mental health, you know, it, it's so still um, not talked about enough, but yeah. you know, even somebody like me who's strong and, you know, I hear that, Oh, you're so strong. I hear that so much. I'm yes, I am, but I'm still, I still have my weak moments and we all, I, I struggle every day. And that really kind of put me, um, you know, it just, I can get knocked down again. Very, very easy. It's trying, mm. it's finding your way back to the light, getting yourself out of that darkness, doing what you can, um, redirecting your thoughts, redirecting your energy, even things that are, you're watching on TV, um, music that you're listening to, put positive stuff in your life if you're starting to go down that dark spot and being sick, um, physical, being sick, uh, physical stuff like that, that can easily throw somebody, you know, down kind of. A but also important to take some onus when you hear people say that, <laughs> like you got to listen to the cues. <clears throat> And now right, I have to email right. you once a month, Jackie, and ask you how you're doing because I have to I'm know now. I'm one of those now. people that will always tell you, "Oh, I'm good, I'm fine." Okay. I don't ask for help. Well, That's no, because some but, when times know, when when people when it gets too much and they check out, you're like, "I didn't know, I didn't know." I wish right. I, would, I wish they would have said something. And so right. you got to listen when people do say something. Right. You know, when people you are do. struggling, you got to listen to them. Mm-hmm. You got to check when, on them. You know, say, when you people doing? are physically ill, you have to teach. People get better when they're loved and cared for. And I am so thankful for my friends. I have the best friends. And even I was pushing them away. No, I, you know, I'm sick. You know, you got to stay away, blah, blah, blah. I still had people checking in on me. Zach Levitt, um, David Balenson, Michael Glinsky, you know, all of these Mm. wonderful people that I've been working with, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed. So, you know, yeah, check on those around you. You just never know. We're all going through a crazy time right now. It yeah. really is. And I hate talking about COVID, but I just went through it. You know, um, yeah. check on those around you. Thanks for your honesty, Jackie. Yeah. Zach Levitt, your turn. You got to talk about something. Now what are you going to do? You had some softball about, about a baby carry and now you got, yeah. You got... How do I follow that? <laughs> yeah. How do you follow Oh, that? sorry. Go micro. Go will, micro. You can't go you, big. Well, you can't top well, Jackie. You can't well, top well, Jackie. <laughs> one thing that comes to mind, I, I actually did have one question for you, Zach, that I'd like to Ooh. ask, but, Uh-oh. um, one question that comes to mind when we're talking about mental health, I tried getting into meditation. I tried because God knows I need it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, how'd you do it? What form? I, I was gifted the Calm app. Yeah. And I was searching for something that, you know, that I could, that I could dig into that would, you know, help me get to sleep or, or calm me down or whatever the case may be, you know, for those stressful moments. 
And I'm so bad at it. And I know everybody says you just got to keep doing it, even if it's one minute long. It's like I, I have a puppy. It's like training the puppy, you know, like minuscule yeah. increments at a time, right? And I find myself judging the person that is speaking. Why yeah, 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 yeah. In that tone? Why, why are they saying this? And I, I can't get out of my own head. So I need yeah. to figure out how to you, meditate better. I got the pot for you. I'm going to throw the pot at you in a second here, but I got to say, you got to, I had the same problem. You got to get rid of the voices ones, the, the, the narrative led ones. It'll take you right out of it. So Who's Matt, the voices. Honey, Deep sleep sounds is the app. Deep, Deep sleep, sleep sounds. I'm writing yeah. It. And he's got a list. It's this Icelandic guy. He's got a couple of them. I think he's Icelandic, but he's got this super great voice. He's like, hello and welcome to another day. And like, immediately, like you hear his voice, you're like, okay, I'm out already. And then it's just like two hours of ocean waves or two hours of a busy street or two hours. Lose the voice is what I'm saying. Because yeah. the voice, because you like stories and you're a storyteller yeah. and you like characters. So you hear a voice and you're like, oh, where's this guy living? What's he doing? What's his exactly day like? Right. I he shouldn't have said it. it like this. He should have said it like that. Yeah, yeah, I would have done 10 more takes right, on Jackie, that. Take it easy. Jackie, wait a second. We're getting to the hardest. Yeah, Maybe some, uh, <laughs> Jackie, did he, did, did he have a lot of notes for you? Did, uh, oh, yeah, there a lot of, yeah, yeah. Few. Didn't like, you know, he's incredibly talented. I guess. So I listened. I, I guess did he knows. We got a little, you know, it got a little short and he could tell when I was getting a little frustrated. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 had my, uh, I knew exactly like, you know, how the day would go from the first yeah. five seconds of the phone call. And, uh, but we, <laughs> we got through it beautifully. You know, I, don't know. We, I, I don't know if I'd give notes to the daughter of a hell's angel. I don't think I would do it. Jackie was think. an amazing sport. She she oh. would she would give me uh, I don't know if I can curse, but she would sure she, she she would give me shit about it about direction, and then it would always end up with her doing it, and she'd finally nail it. And uh, <laughs> she was you know it was such a new thing for her, but she was amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful pod. I hope more people subscribe. I hope people check it out. Um, where can you get? Uh, you, you can get it on all of the pods. Yeah. Relative yep. Unknown is available on Spotify and all the good yep. stuff. Anywhere yeah, you go ahead, Zach. Yep. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, anywhere you get your podcast. <sighs> this is fun, guys. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you. You bet. You bet. This has been the Pod Spotter, where we showcase the pods that you really need to know about. But if you have some that you think we should know about, please let us know via thepodspotter.com or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or anywhere else you put pictures of your kids. Thanks, everybody. This has been Zach Robinos. The Pod Spotter is created by the Price Brothers, produced by Oink Inc. Radio, associate producer Tori Adams, and is recorded and produced at Baker Sound in Philadelphia.